Welcome to Just an Average Citizen, the podcast that helps to inform, educate, and empower you to make an impact in Abilene and the big country. I'm really excited about this episode. It has taken quite a few uh, kinks to work out, so there must be something good I'm going to get to share here, hopefully. Um, you know, it's funny, like, there's so many details that I'm just not ready to start really processing. Like, I did record um, a previous attempt at this at this ver- at this episode and found out that I matched my bedspread behind me. And I thought, wow, that was really unfortunate. So thankfully, I got an opportunity to redo this. And now I'm clashing with it. But at least I don't blend in with a bed. Anyway, there's been a lot of fun opportunities to grow and learn as we work through this because it seems so simple and easy, but there's so many moving parts. And I'm so thankful that my husband has helped me out so much by making me work and do this well, because without him, I would be a hot mess. I would be doing it on my phone, probably in the wrong way. And he would just shake his head at me and and think, how can you put out such low quality? But anyway, it's all fun. So I just want to give a disclaimer here. This is going to be an episode that is uh, editorial. It is not one that's just straight down the middle of the road. I I do put out one episode a week that is about the city of Abilene and what's going on there. And I try to keep that pretty, pretty basic so that you know information so you can make an impact based on what you need to do. But this is going to be more, let's talk about real stuff going on in our culture. It's going to be uh, a book review, sort of, so, so to speak. But it's going to be a book review that helps you to understand how to equip yourself to be ready for the culture war. And there may be some people who enjoy the Week in Review, the Week in Preview, Week at a Glance, that episode. But we may not agree on everything here. But I think it's important to, to not stay in the middle of the road because being in the middle of the road means you really don't take a side. And we are in a battle for good and evil. And we have to take a side and we have to stand up. And the only way I know how to help you to stand up for what is the right things to stand up and fight is to understand what's going on in our culture. Um, so I wanted to start off with something I think is very foundational and important to understanding where our country started. And so this is my monument to the forefathers. And I wish I could show it to you all at once, but it's just not happening. But I think this is foundational to understanding why we need to think about how we approach a um, fighting culture wars because a lot of people just want to stay neutral on culture wars and they just want to mind their own lives and and not really get involved in it. It's really hard because if you don't do it, there is a culture being influenced by a worldview. And so you have to find the worldview that you want to stand up and believe is the best path forward for living and success. And if you don't put that out there, there are other people who will be happy to do it. So being passive in this area is very unproductive. So I I went to this, I, I'm sorry, I've heard about this a long time ago and only dreamed of getting to go to it, like some people maybe to dreamed of going to Europe, but I never thought I would make it that far because it's in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and there's just not a lot of life up there that I live that is in Plymouth, Massachusetts. So there came an opportunity in the summer of July of 2021, we were able to actually go to this monument. It was amazing. I loved it. And why I thought this is important is because this gives us direction. Like most statues, most monuments do, they're to remind us of what we've been through and where we've been so we can go in the right direction. And so this is a statue that I 
found very fascinating. They started building it in 1854, and it was funded by the government. It took 34 years, I believe, to raise the money. Is that right? My brain may be crossing some numbers. It was a long, a long time because there was a civil war in the middle of it, and it was finally completed and celebrated on in, in 1889, and I believe there was like 2,000, almost 2,000 people that showed up to celebrate this monument tucked right off the shore in Plymouth, Massachusetts. So why this is important, it's a monument to our forefathers. And who are our forefathers? But the pilgrims. They arrived in America in 1620. And I think it's important that you understand that they didn't leave England just because they wanted a better home or better land or a better job. They left England because England said, if you continue to practice your faith the way you're living, we're going to kill you. We're going to end up putting you in prison and killing you. And so they left in duress. They had no place to go on in the world that would allow them to worship God freely. And so they worked out a path forward in the new land. And it wasn't an easy one. In fact, I believe almost half of them died before they even reached shore. Uh, maybe not reached shore, but within the first year because everything went, everything that could go wrong did. And so they modeled for us how we should live our life. And the biggest part of this statue is this lady named Faith, and her name is right here. She's pointing up to God because everything comes from God, and that's where we keep our focus. She's actually holding the Geneva Bible, which is the first Bible that many, that any, that the the general public or the general population was able to read for themselves. They didn't have to depend on a clergy member to read the Bible to them. So it's really significant. And then she has these four different categories on the bottom. The first one is morality because all morality comes from God. The second one is um, law because, you know, we have to have, we have to know the boundaries on how to live an abundant life that he gives us. Then we have education and she's also reading from the Bible. And then we lend up to the last one, which is liberty. Because liberty defeats tyranny. And it's so important that we understand that without these steps, we cannot have the nation that we have enjoyed and lived in for so many centuries. It's so important that we understand everything is based on God. And so we find many people wanting to defeat tyranny, but they don't understand the only way you can do that with this God's truth. And so one of the things we have found is that education has been taken over by people who do not believe in God. And it has been not long, uh, around at the turn of the 19th, 1900s, um, men started in, in, infiltrate, infiltrating the education system with a godless um, worldview, secularism, humanism. And so they began teaching our children these things. So what's crazy is this statue was celebrated in the late 1800s. And by the early 1900s, there were men who strategically got into place not only in our government, but also in the education that began to say, hey, listen, we don't have to, do we don't have to rely on God. Our faith is not important. And we have seen our education fall to um, not only secular humanism, secular, yeah, secularism, humanism. Um, we've also seen the law be affected by it. I mean, you can't hardly get justice these days because there's so many hoops to fall, jump through in order to prove that this person's background had no motivation well, critical legal theory, you, know, you look at that, it has destroyed our legal system because it's made it almost immovable. I mean, you can't, you can't go through the legal system without having to deal from the consequences of um, indoctrinating or teaching our lawyers um, how to practice law without understanding what our forefathers 
set up for us. And then, of course, we have morality, you know. Um, abortion would not be a conversation that would be had if we understood that all life, I mean, it says in our, our declaration um, that, uh, I'm sorry, is that our declaration? And my brain went blank. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think that's a combination of both. But we have the right to life. And that comes because God has given our our life value. So if we we what we need to do is in order to bring let me set this down. In order to bring back liberty and defeat tyranny, because tyranny is oppressive, we have to understand the foundation. And part of that is is by re-educating ourselves to understand how we view this world through God's lens. And you know, it's been a journey. One of the things I, I really wanted to let me read this to you from this. I, I did want to read this one quote to you from the Monument to the Forefathers. Let me see if I can find it. I had it. Now maybe I've lost it. I thought it was a really beautiful picture of this statue. Of course, this is what happens when you do decide to do things impromptu. You can't find it. There we go. Okay. It is our hope that this monument may serve a double purpose. First, let's keep let it keep alive in the hearts of the later generations the memory of all that our present prosperity has cost, that our ease has been bought with the struggles and privations of many, and that the faith undaunted her- and the faith and that faith and undaunted heroism have entered into the very foundations of our institutions. Let it stand to teach the reverence for the past, which is the part of every true nature. Only by building on the past can we lift ourselves on the higher levels. Let this monument stand also as a promise for the future. Let it teach young men that rightfully reverence the past. They must live for the future, as did those men whose memory we honor today. Prosperity has its own perils, no less than adversity. It is sometimes easier to brave the face of the hardship than to be true in the midst of luxury. How many a man has kept himself honest and hardworking in comparative poverty who has proved himself unequal to the temptations of sudden wealth? Let this moment say to him who would honor the pilgrim that he can rightfully do so only by practicing the pilgrim's virtues. May it stand through the years to recall the early days of our country to the minds of all who behold it and to bear witness to the surpassing power in the human heart, which reckons pain and suffering of little account when it is pressing forward to the accomplishment of divine ends. Let me see if I can show you this picture. It's just really a pretty picture of what this monument means. So so this is the beginning. I, I was really trying hard to stay on topic with one book. And I'm going to be calling this this episodes these episodes Book by the Bite because I want to give you bites of books so you can see the whole picture and taste and see, oh, maybe I want to read that and, and learn a little bit more. Or even just get a bite of it and go, wow, that's, that's some powerful information. However, the topic that, I mean, I have just been sitting on this for probably a month, not really knowing how to move forward in it because it feels so much bigger than myself. One of the things I'm going to show you is that when I talk about stuff, it's not because I just read a, a blog or a news article. It's not because I looked up something on the internet. It's not because I heard somebody else talk about it. This is coming from what I have learned and studied because of what I've been listening to. And I tried to stack up books. Let me show you. Here is a stack of books. I would say that each part of these books, plus I have more on my Kindle that I don't have the physical books. 
have greatly impacted what I'm going to teach to you today and what I'm going to talk about mainly today. And I know most of you are busy. Most of you don't have a lot of free time to read into these these more cerebral topics because we've got a lot going on. And so I'm going to hopefully be able to give you just enough for you can understand to be able to walk confidently in battling these culture wars, but also give you an ability to still dig in and learn more for yourself. And trust me, I say things sometimes backwards. I like I remember one time I was saying it and I looked at the number five and I said the number six or I looked at the number six and said like sometimes my brain just doesn't say it right. So I always want you to test me. And if you find something that I say is not true or you disagree with me, you know, leave a comment. Let me know. Reach out because this is how we grow is by these healthy conversations, learning to navigate through what is true and what is just a a lie being a, a narrative being shoved down our throats through lies. And so when I was trying to figure out how best to get to the end result, which is lost in translation, um, a child's a child psychiatrist guide out of the madness. This is by Dr. Miriam Grossman. This is what inspired these next few episodes. And so it has become bigger than I thought it would. You know, I remember I used to share these videos with, I would make these videos for friends who wanted to read through books together and and I love talking about it, and and I can get through a book pretty quickly. But this one is so so heavy and and so important, and so there's so much weight on it that I really felt I could do justice by just going through the book quickly. Because if you don't understand the lens on how to look through this, you're going to miss half of what's going on. And that's what I found when I started this journey. Is I didn't realize how much I didn't know until I started figuring it out. So on the screen here, you see I have a, a tweet. You know, there's a lot of tweets I could have used. I guess it's, this is when it was still Twitter, back in 2022. This lady, Linz, I believe it's a lady. She doesn't, I don't know. This person, Linz, it says, when I talk about queer transition and non-binary kids, I'm not just talking about kids who currently identify as such. I'm talking about all kids because all kids are queer. Queer as in different, non-normative, and pre-structural. That's why kids are vital to liberation movements. Man, if that doesn't sober you up and go, wow, it doesn't matter if my kid, if I raise them upright, they're still going to be targeting my kid to go after this non-normative, different pre-structural movement and bring about the destruction of our nation. So I thought that was a good quote. They're not just targeting kids who say they're queer. They're targeting all kids because they believe all kids are queer. Queer theory, this is what James Lindsay says, who has been such a wealth of information. Um, Queer theory is a Gnostic cult of religion. Anything like Pride Month is a religious ritual for recruitment of children. It's a recruitment guide to get them to come into their Gnostic cult. Gnostic is just a fancy word of, I know something you don't know. (laughs) And so we cannot allow this to take over our schools any more than it already has, our churches all more, already more than it has, our, our governmental institutions. I mean, we're talking about this is everywhere. And I want you to be empowered to be able to see it so that you can start to recognize where you can make the greatest impact. So I need to give you a little background history into this journey because I didn't just end up here going, okay, this is what we got to do. I was actually living abroad in 2019 and somehow I came across this YouTube video uh, with a man named James Lindsay, and there were two different uh, men on there who were Christians. And I thought, this is odd, this atheist talking to Christians. 
But what he was saying is, listen, this critical theory has already infiltrated our atheistic community. If you don't watch it, it's going to destroy yours too. And it really sounded so futuristic. It sounded fictional. I really couldn't believe it. I didn't know what to do with it because I was like, this is insane. How could this actually be a legitimate way that people view the world? But I tucked it away and later found out that it very much is true. It very much is how people are viewing the world. And if you don't know it, you're immersed in it all around, even here in Abilene, Texas. It's quite shocking, to be honest. Okay, so um, that led me to after we were all um, stuck in our houses for COVID, I had some free time. And so a homeschool mom had shared with me a video by uh, Monica Desson and Krista Von Traeger about critical race theory. And again, I watched it thinking there's no way this is legitimate, but quickly I found interactions that I had with people, mainly on social media because we were all, all in our homes. I was seeing that it was true, but it helped me to understand that I can't fight it with the same tools or the same weapons that we fought things in the past. And it really is because of this great thing called postmodernism. I wanted to understand what was going on, not just that it was going on. And it was something that I couldn't find anyone really to talk to. So I was very excited. Let me see if I can get this switched over here. I was very excited when I, uh, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose wrote a book called Cynical Theories. It's how activist scholarship made everything about race, gender, and identity and why this harms everybody. So he wrote that with Helen Pluckrose. Pluckrose, she's a, um, a British lady, and James Lindsay is an American. And I did this because I knew I needed to understand, but it, it was so big, my brain exploded. But I pushed through and I got to it. And so I just want to share a few highlights from this that I think is important for us to understand moving forward why this Transnation, Lost in Transnation book is so relative and time, or you know, is that relative and timely for what season we're in now. So you have to look at postmodernism a little bit. This is um, something that it was kind of uh, came around the 60s, but it really didn't take a new form until the 90s. And so I'm not going to get into all of the history and the timeline and all the people who are in there. But trust me, it has affected every part of our world, every part of every institution in our nation. It is it is amazing how quick we bought it hook, line and sinker. Okay, so on here, I'm just going to read some quotes here. I'm going to try and point to them as I can. Taking a radically new conception of our world and our relation to it, it revolutionized social philosophy and perhaps social everything. Okay, postmodernism is difficult to define, perhaps by design. Interesting. If you try to talk to people about postmodernism, I guarantee you they're going to tell you you don't know. You're not in the Gnostic cult of postmodernism to understand enough. And it's crazy. Even when you think you understand, you'll be called on it and say, you haven't done enough research. You don't have enough lived experiences. The color of my skin also makes me unable to fully understand and explore this. The next thing I want to point out to you from postmodernism, again, I'm just hitting the highlights. This is not something I've just like picked up and threw together for this episode. I actually sat down and thought, okay, how do I navigate through this for you? And how do I help you be empowered to take new tools to fight in the new battles that you are going to um, engage in because of this knowledge? The first thing I want to see that says up here, um, I get a little clip. Some of these I haven't highlighted. And so uh, let's see. Yes, this is openly rejects um, the possibility. 
to love. Oh, that's right up here. Okay. See, this is where I know it is. Okay. Um, Although postmodernism openly rejects the possibility of the foundations that have built modernity, it nevertheless has a profound impact on thinking, culture, and politics of those societies that modernity built. So it's going to say, yep, um, all the things that built this that we're living in, it's got to come down. It is, um, it's, it's unacceptable. We can't do that. Which is ironic because they wouldn't be in the situation they're in if it wasn't for modernity. But the modernity that came about, it's it's rejected. Now I want to bring into you some just some basic principles for you to help to understand that in 1996, Walter Truett Anderson describes four pillars of postmodernism. The social construct of the concept of self identity is constructed by many cultural forces and not given a person by tradition. Okay, so you can't find your identity in anything but culture. Whew, culture changes so frequently. Can you imagine how unnerving that is for a person to find grounding without having anything to look to to find their identity? Two, relativism of moral and ethical discourse. Morality is not found but made. Hmm, Remember we talked about faith and morality comes from God. Here it says, nope, it's made. It's not found. You can't understand morality. You make it. That is, morality is not based on cultural or religious traditions, nor is the mandate of heaven. It is the mandate of heaven, but constructed by dialogue and choice. This is relativism, not in the sense of being non-judgmental, but in the sense of believing that all forms of morality are socially constructed cultural worldviews. That's why I was saying, if you don't learn how to inject, interject your worldview, someone else is going to do it. And I guarantee it's these people who are intent about rejecting and demolishing and destroying our society because of what they've come to believe in postmodernism. And I believe that, you know, there is secular humanism and that's it, but it's been mixed in with this and, and this godless approach to life is really counterproductive and it's destroying everything we hold dear. Number three, deconstruction in art and culture. The focus is on endless, playful improvision and variations on themes and mixing of high and low culture. And number four, globalization. People see all kinds of social constructions that can be crossed and reconstructed and are inclined to take their tribal norms less seriously. So don't don't worry about those around you. Don't worry about your tribe, your family, your culture. You're going to become more global. Does that sound like anything going on? We need more global citizens. You know, if we can destruct, deconstruct your what makes you you and make you look as if a mass of people, then you can be controlled way more easily. It's it's really frightening, to be honest. Okay, the next picture. I want to show you um, the four the four themes, the blurring of boundaries, the power of language, cultural relativism and the loss of the individual and the universal. So we change the language. We make it all about this changing culture that can easily adapt to it. Well, if that doesn't work, we'll just adapt it. Now we'll go this way and you'll see that it, it like it, this uh, James and Helen liken this to a virus that just adapts so it can survive and the loss of the individual. You don't matter on an individual scale. You just need to do what is good for the whole. In the order of things, Foucault argues against objective notions of truth and suggests we think instead of terms of regimes of truth which change according to the specific epistemy of culture and time. So again, truth is not objective. It can change within the whatever context you want to make it out of, of culture and time. Oh, I tell you what, this, is, this, this can be depressing if we stay here. 
being a postmodernist is depressing if you stay in that. So now we're going to look at um, this part. I really thought this was a brilliant explanation. We therefore think of postmodernism as kind of a fast-evolving virus. Its original and purest form was unsustainable. It tore its host apart and destroyed itself. It could not spread from the academy to the general population because it was so difficult to grasp and so seemingly removed from social realities. In its evolved form, it spread, leaving the species gap from academics to activists to everyday people. As it became increasingly graspable and actionable and therefore more contagious, it mutated around the core of theory to form several new strains, which are far less playful, far less playful, and far more certain of their own meta narratives. These are centered on the practical aim that was absent before to reconstruct society and an image of an ideology which came to refer to itself as social, social justice. Now, I know many of you have, you know who your social justice warriors are. You know people who fight for social justice. You know churches that their main focus is social justice. I know there's churches here in Abilene that have moved off into that world. And when we are standing up for righteousness in our city, it is those churches whose members show up and say, nope, you can't do that. You can't deny people because of social justice. So I think that is um, really what you have to key in on social justice is part of postmodernism. And that's a word that they'll use to make their plight be more important than anything you would say or do. Um, so it is, it has evolved. It's had to change because it was very academic and now it is so in everything. You don't even realize how it is. All right, let's go to the next, the next quote. Oops. What did I do here? Uh, there we go. Okay. Um, down here, it talks about the new forms of theory arose within post-colonialism. You've heard that word. Black feminism, a branch of feminism pioneered by African-American scholars who focused as much on race as gender, intersectional feminism, critical race, legal theory, and queer theory, all which sought to describe the world in critically in order to change it. So it finds critical things and then wants to tell you how to change it. The problem is, is it just tells you what's wrong and doesn't give you a path forward to actually change it. Now, there are so many different different aspects of this that I could talk about and would be happy to, but I'm focusing mainly in on queer theory for this particular series of episodes. Okay, let's go to, uh, I love it. Okay, Edward said, the founding father of post-colonial theory drew heavily on my, me, me, Michel Foucault and his work therefore focused on how discourses construct reality. For said, it was not simply enough to simply deconstruct power structures and show how perceptions of the East had been constructed by the West. It was necessary to revise and rewrite history. And honestly, that is a lot of where I found myself in April and the spring of 2020 as I was hearing stories and I was like, well, how, how did this actually work out? Because this is what I've always heard. This is what I've taught. This is what my mom talked about growing up. But how does this fit in? And the more I started to look into, I realized that it was a revision. You know, like I always heard about the States War. That was a revision. It really wasn't about the States War. Now, you could twist it. But when you make a constitution based like as the is your your claim to fame of your constitution is that you're the first nation to legalize slavery. That's a pretty strong point of what you're fighting for. But I digress. So let's go on to the next one. All right. Um, 
So I think this is so important. Down here, there's a lady named Jen Judith Butler, and she's an, a, found, a feminist scholar, activist, LBGT scholar and activist who is foundational to development of queer theory, epitomizes the opposite approach to this dilemma. In her most influential work, influential work, Gender Trouble, published in 1990, Butler focuses on the socially constructed of both gender and sex. For Butler, women, woman is not a class of people, but a performance that construct gendered reality. You can just be a performing woman. <sighs> Do we see that in our society? Do we see that there are men who think that they can become women by just performing it? Because you don't have to actually be a woman. You just do the performance of woman. I tell you what, it's like we saw the writing on the wall, but somehow we were so, our eyes were so focused on just being inside four walls that we missed what was going on in society all around us. This is, again, reminding you of the blurring of boundaries. This is where they get it. They don't, there's nothing objective. You can't define it. It's because it's all blurred. It says here that um, um, this, this theme is most evident in post-colonial and queer theories, which are both explicitly centered on ideas of fluid, fluidity, ambiguity, and definability, and hybridity, all of which blur or even demolish the boundaries between categories. So, you know, disrupting binaries, you know, I'm non-binary, which means I don't fall into the biological framework of male and female, even though that's biology. And we can talk about that. You're, they're gonna, they're, you're not forced to be anything. It's fluid. It's ambiguous, you know. Okay, the next one is actually, we're going to get into queer theory. But queer theory, right here at the first sentence, it is about liberation from the normal, especially when it comes to norms of gender and sexuality. This is because it regards the very existence of categories of sex, gender, and sexuality to be oppressive. Categories are oppressive, which I find interesting because categories give you your power in intersectionality. And that's just determines how many places of oppression do you have. But categories are oppressive. But if you can categorize yourself, you can be more victimized than other people. It's so hypocritical. And, and that's the point. Like I said, it's possibly by design that it's hard to define. Okay, uh, it ignores biology. Is that on there? Oh, here we go. Queer theory presumes that oppression flows from a categorization which arises every time language constructs a sense of what is normal by producing and maintaining rigid categories of sex, male and female, gender, masculine and feminine, feminine, and there's others. But that was just that you, you get the idea of boundaries. So I thought this was interesting because I've been having a lot of conversations with people about how do we talk about this? How do we use terms that actually are grounded in something so that we can have healthy conversations? So like post-colonial theory, queer theory has a solid underlying point. We have changed the way we see sexuality quite profoundly. Throughout Christian history, male homosexuality has been considered a heinous sin. This is in stark contrast to ancient Greek culture where it was acceptable for men to have sex with adolescent boys until they were ready to marry, at which point it was expected that they would switch to having sex with women. In both cases, however, homosexuality was something that people did rather than who they were. The idea that one could be a homosexual only began, began to gain recognition in the 19th century, appearing first in medical text and within homosexual subcultures. Um, contemporary medical texts described homosexuality as a perversion. Public perception of homosexuals then gradually started to shift due to the rise of sexology at the end of the 19th century. And by the middle of the 20th century, they were regarded as less corrupt degenerates. Okay. 
So um, let me not turn that page here. So the next point I want to make is that women gained control over their own reproductive rights. Right down here, a profound change took place during second wave feminism, during Western second wave feminism in the latter half of the 20th century, when women gained control over their reproductive function and their rights to access all jobs and be paid the same as men for the same work. So once women had control over becoming mothers, then they could now um, not be limited to um, being faithful in marriage. They were not limited to waiting until their kids allowed them to have jobs. They could just start working whenever they wanted to. And now we have a bunch of people who are waiting so long to get married because they have the careers they want, they have the houses they want, but their bodies are saying, you waited too long. It's really hard for that to happen now. And it's, it's really dis- disappointing. But, you know, it became part of why we're talking about this because it wasn't just that women were given control over the reproductive function. There was a greater plan and play even over that, that I think came before post, uh, post, uh, modern, um, post-modernism took off, even in the academic world. Okay, next, let's go here. Queer refers to anything outside of the boundaries. Let me see where that is. I done better in the other. Uh, the, the Queer refers to the, anything that falls outside of binaries, such as male, female, masculine, feminine, and heterosexual, homosexual, and to a way of challenging the links between gender, sex, gender, and sexuality. For example, um, you know, women have, we have expectations of what women are. We have expectations of who, what men typically do, and they want to break those binaries down so that there's no... There's nothing to describe anything. It's just chaos and madness, as Dr. Grossman says. Okay, so I think this is important here. The main industry of the queer theorist, the main industry of the of queer theorists is to intentionally conflate two meanings of normative and deliberately make strategic use of the moral understanding of the term to contrive problems with this descriptive meaning. Normativity is considered pejoratively by queer theorists and is often preceded by a prefix like hetero, straight, cis, gender, and sex match, and thin, not obese. By challenging normativity in all its manifestations, queer theory therefore seeks to unite the minority groups who fall outside the normative categories under a single banner queer. They seek to unite the minority groups. That's why using terms like POC, people of color, it unites anyone who doesn't have white skin, perceived white skin. (laughs) You know, this whole thing in Israel has made it interesting, the discussion about what is white and not white. But they want to unite minorities so they can prey upon their feelings of neglect and being overlooked and say, oh, you're you're you've been denied what you're supposed to have, and now we've got to we got to tear it all down so that you can have what you deserve. But again, there's no solution added. I feel like you have enough of postmodernism and queer theory to move forward, but I want you to know that that is the glue that ties this together. This is what we have to come back to and understand. This is what the foundation has been built on of so many things. So. After I read this book, I I was able to find out about this book by Abigail Schreier called Irreversible Damage. And what I found was, well, first of all, I'd heard about it and, you know, she's not a believer. And so I try to stay on people who, with people who understand um, God's ways of seeing the world, which is ironic because James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, they're not Christians. They're very much atheists. (laughs) But here again, this lady, Abigail Schreier, was calling out truth and it was shocking to so many people. In fact, that Target refused to sell her book for 
until they it was forced to put it back on the shelves because of all the outrage. So this is a great book called Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. And I only have a few quotations to show you from this one because, again, she talks about this social contagion of um, transgenderness, uh, the transgender social contagion, that it used to be, and we'll talk about this with Dr. Grossman, it used to be something that happened to um, preschool boys, like gender confusion, gender gender dysphoria, gender disorder was about small boys, young boys, that typically most of them outgrew it during puberty if not before. And so what's began happening here right lately is it's now a phenomenon on teenage girls, you know, and it says it seeks to unite the minority. Remember the queer theory says it seeks to unite the minority. What group feels so out of place, doesn't know how to behave in its body, doesn't her body doesn't know how to identify with others, feels so out of sorts, like just teenage girls. It's like the hardest season of life because you're learning to step into your who God made you to be. And it's a really tricky and confusing way. And if people get to you in a certain, in a certain time frame, you can think that your struggles are abnormal and there's something wrong with you. And that's why you need to be transgender instead of going, no, you'll grow out of this. This is just part of learning to step into who you are. Okay, here is a great quote from this book. If this sudden spike in transgender identification among adolescent girls is a peer contagion or social contagion, as Dr. Littman hypothesized, then the girls rushing towards transition are not getting treatment they most need. Instead of immediately accommodating every adolescent's demand for hormones and surgeries, doctors ought to be working to understand what else might be wrong. At best, doctors' treatments are ineffective. At worst, doctors are administrating administering needless hormonal treatment and irreversible surgeries on patients likely to regret them. And I appreciate you taking time. I hope that you will stay tuned to what's next because there's more where this came from. And I'm excited to be able to engage in a way that I don't think our city has ever really engaged in in the past. And this is looking forward to new and exciting times as we become ready to be informed, educated, and make an impact in Abilene and the big country. You have a great time until the next episode. (music)